0: Welcome to Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We're your hosts, Natalie Kavorik, a rancher and pharmacist from Nebraska. And Tara Vanderdeusen, a dairy farmer and environmental scientist from New Mexico. And together we bring you our professional farming opinions on a variety of trending topics in the ag and food space. So you can better understand our food system and feel connected to the hands that feed us. We are back with episode 97 of Discover Ag that is brought to you in part by KsiH. And today is a very special episode. Natalie is actually not going to be on the podcast today. She's taking a week off uh, kind of to spend time with her family, a mental health week, just like take a summer break. And so instead, we brought on my husband, none other than Daniel VanderDusen.
1: Oh, wow. Thanks for the <laughs> intro. Man.
0: So you have actually been on the podcast before, back way back. If people have been listening a long time, back when we were Elevate Ag, you came on to share about how you share on social media on Facebook, correct?
1: Uh, I forgot all about that until just now, but yeah.
0: But you're aware of the fact that now our podcast is different. Unlike Luke, you actually listen to the podcast.
1: I don't do just blind support like Luke. I actually do real support. <laughs> Take that, Luke.
0: <laughs> oh, man. I feel like you won't
1: hear that anyways.
0: <laughs> I feel like our group um, message between me, you, Natalie, and Luke will be um, very, very lively. Yeah, I, after just, that. I just
1: threw him under the bus. Sorry about that.
0: <laughs> uh, Maddie said that her husband listens to the podcast more than her. Thanks a lot, Maddie. I'm blind, <laughs> blind support again coming from Maddie. <laughs> So this weekend, we actually spent the weekend at the lake. The girls and I went up on Friday. You came up later in the weekend, and we were celebrating my dad's birthday and my dad's brother's birthday, so my uncle's birthday, and I was laughing because your dad was also there too, and so all of us together, we all have Dutch heritage, and so my dad, my uncle, and your dad all go by Opa, which is the grandpa name in the netherlands or in dutch in dutch and so all weekend it was like opa 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 opa." yeah there's
1: opas all over the place at one point there's three opas on one boat very (laughs) confusing for the kids or maybe more confusing for the opas i'm not sure
0: yeah i was like opa gary opa randy opa bruce (laughs) but a fun fact about us is that um you can tell this story but the first time you remember meeting me was actually at the lake
1: yeah at the uh, U Lake motel Lodge or whatever it is <laughs> some dinky hotel up in uh, up in our lake that uh, our families would go to for the summer and would get hotel rooms there and uh, they're kind of like little apartment hotel rooms
0: you are making it sound way fancier than it is it was also a motel not a hotel
1: <laughs> Guys, this was not fancy like it was straight up ho- not horrible we it was made just it work a little rough. Yeah, it was like a Motel 8. Yeah. Yeah, that kind of stars. Yeah, Maybe like a kind. one or two stars.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was three years old and you were five years yeah. old. So, I don't remember. But what do you remember about meeting me? Just how incredible I was?
1: We'll definitely go with that. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, I remember walking up and there was like a little Eve on the <clears throat> the motel. And I was like, Whoa cute little girl. And then I was like, wow, she has really pretty eyes. And then that was all I thought about it. And then, uh, like 20 years later, <laughs> I started dating you. <laughs> took and you
0: 20 years. Before yeah, 20 you asked years. Me out.
1: <laughs> it took me a long time to get smart.
0: <laughs> uh No, we talked about how we're both Dutch. We're both dairy. We have like a ton of similarities. We grew up just down the road from each other and you're actually We're best friends with my older brother. Yeah. So maybe I was like kind of off limits and you were kind of off limits. And then eventually we started.
1: Well, we were family friends, right? So I don't think either one of us wanted to uh, get into all that, especially when we're young.
0: We didn't want to rock the family friendship.
1: Yeah. So, but no, it worked. I'm glad we didn't date until we started because who knows what could happen. It could have messed up everything.
0: Right. So we were not high school sweethearts. We did not start dating until your senior year in college and my sophomore year in college. Yep. So yeah, so you're filling in today. It's kind of a little bit last minute. I only told you last night that you were coming on the podcast.
1: Yep. And then Tara's like, you better study up. I'm like, oh my gosh.
0: So Luke kind of had an advantage. When Luke came on the podcast, he, Natalie let him pick the articles, but we actually already had the articles picked. So you just got kind of like thrown to the wolves.
1: Yeah. But I think they're good articles.
0: Thankfully, there's a dairy article, so we're in really great hands with you. You'll have a lot to say about the dairy article. It probably will be the bulk of this episode since we both love dairy so much.
1: Gotta love that dairy.
0: (laughs) So did you take notes? Did you prep for today, or are you just like rolling?
1: My notes are very limited, and uh, so mostly just rolling with it. I did refresh right before we got on here to uh, just bring it all back in because I read it earlier today, but... Then Tara started making me nervous if I studied and looked at other articles about the articles. So
0: We take our podcast very seriously and do a lot of research.
1: I know. So I
0: just don't want our listeners to, you know, they they expect a certain level of uh, research.
1: I hope I can bring it (laughs) to that level. (laughs) You hope you
0: can deliver?
1: Uh, We'll see. I hope.
0: Okay, so we have been doing a new thing, a word of the day. Natalie sent some suggestions over, but I went in a different direction and picked my own word of the day, and it's called vamoose. moose. Do you want to try to use it in a sentence?
1: The only thing I can think of is a moose, <laughs> <laughs> so I know that's not right.
0: It's to depart quickly. Time to vamoose. vamoose. Like, get on out of here. Let's vamoose. Hmm. Do you think you can use th- it today? I don't
1: think I'll ever use that word.
0: Okay. The goal is to try (laughs) to use it during the podcast. I will try. Okay. All right. So with that, are you ready for your first article? Let's go. All right. So the first article is titled Dairy Farmers Resort to Dumping Thousands of Gallons of Milk with Processing Plants Unable to Keep Up. You may have seen videos of Minnesota dairy farmers dumping thousands of gallons of milk on their farm because of oversupply and processing plants being unable to keep up and finding a new home for milk isn't easy. Initial thoughts?
1: Well, yes, probably when this thing came out or when they're dumping milk or you had spring flush coming in. Um, what is that, that? So spring flush is when the days start getting longer, the cows, the temperature is better for the cows. So they produce more milk. So it's a flush of milk. And in the United States, processing is limited right now. So if there's any little hiccup or a little bit of overproduction, or if a plant goes down, there's a surplus of milk. And sadly, at this point, either we have to dump it or take it to a calf ranch and they can feed the milk to the calves uh, and they get it at a discounted rate. So, but at least you still get paid for it that way even though it's pennies on the on the dollar, you still get paid.
0: So, this is kind of a hard topic I feel like to cover. I actually didn't want to cover it. Natalie actually picked it and put it in the the Trello board for us. But one of the reasons I didn't want to cover it is because It's really regional. Like, yes, it is something that like the entire country experiences at different times, and there's different issues. But it's really hard to like pin down exactly what's going on in that region if you're not there. So we can like give our we can relate. Like, I want to tell you know tell some stories of some situations like here in New Mexico we've experienced recently. But it is really hard to figure out exactly what's going on. But as you said, dairy demand is up. There is a, like there's demand for dairy, but production is up. And then there's just not enough processing plants. And I think that's kind of maybe where I want to start is actually a little explanation of how the milk gets from like our farm to market. So there's a couple of options, but like we sell our milk through a co-op. So we are a group of dairy farmers and someone sells our milk to different creameries, plants, butter plants, milk processing plants, like across the country and then it goes to market. Some people are independent where they aren't a part of a co-op, they sell directly to a creamery or bottomling plant. Both have pros and cons. I would say being a part of a co-op kind of helps you withstand maybe some like changes because you're like marketing your milk on like a broader scale. Some people think being an independent, you get a little bit more maybe for your milk, but there can be more volatility. So even that part of it's really complicated.
1: Yeah. So the independents, those are tricky. That's a tricky deal right there because you don't really, you can have a contract with them, but they can also just cut you off too. So if you're an independent dairy farmer and they're like, oh, we can't take your milk, we don't have a spot for it. And then you're sitting there going, oh no, where do I go with it? Whereas like a co-op, even though they might not have a place they can dump it but the co-op will help pay for your milk so it comes out of like a hole so at least then you're not scrambling to find a home for your milk
0: so we actually got a dm from a disco
1: i don't know i have a question okay what is a disco
0: oh that i was about to say if you didn't know people who listen to discover ag are called discos
1: but i listened to it and i still don't know what it is
0: okay well you're a disco you got they people sent in suggestions of what they wanted to be called and that was the winning one that's oh. why we like we have disco balls and like fun stuff
1: interesting in our podcast
0: so a disco actually sent in something they were exactly like what you said they were an independent contract and they had a contract with a milk supply company and the milk supplier basically or the milk processor was like that's it in a week we will no longer be processing your milk and they were scrambling and i think one of the things that's unique about milk is that milk is a perishable product it's also like a liquid so it's not like i know it this is hard in a lot of places like if you need to harvest onions they need to be harvested but sometimes you can have like a l- few days or if you like harvest an onion you may have like a couple weeks before it goes bad whereas like milk it is literally like you have it coming off the farm every single day, and then you have to keep it cold. So there's only so much storage. So like if something happens, like a plant goes down, which getting back to this article is exactly what happened, a plant went down, they were having issues with um, how they process their wastewater with the city. And so the plants shut down for 30 days. Well, there's no you can't hold the milk for 30 days in like a refrigerator waiting for the plant to come back up. And so it just is Very quickly, I remember it happened here in New Mexico. We had a plant down the road, and it's an older plant, and it needed some kind of updating. And they had to store milk in tankers all over the place. It was like a whole logistic nightmare of trying to figure out how to help this plant. And that plant was only closed for like 48 hours. So I can't imagine a month.
1: Right. It is. uh, I will take my hat off to, like for our co-op, our logistics team is extremely well. And they pull uh, rabbits out of the hat all the time to try to make it where you're not dumping milk and we can get this place to a plant. Sometimes though, especially if something just breaks one of these plants and they have to shut down without a schedule, it backs up throughout the plant where they have to stop and clean and it just takes time. And uh, one of our friends actually runs or manages a plant. And he, when he's talking to us about when a line goes down or something breaks that they try to get it up and running as quick as possible. But yeah, it can take 24, 48 hours to get that line back up and running, depending on what broke and how backed up throughout the line it went. So, and we have so much, the logistics team gets down to just the nitty gritty on the amount of milk that goes into these plants. As soon as one plant goes off, they, it's very difficult to, find homes for this milk when we are producing just the right amount for these plants.
0: You talked about the logistics team, like how much they have it dialed in and some other issues that they mentioned, like in this Midwest area. So this this was in Minnesota. I think the girl I talked to was in uh, Wisconsin. It seems Midwest is really struggling right now, but there's also a lot of labor issues. Apparently some creameries have had to close because they cannot get employees, Fuel prices are really high, so whereas you may have been able to transport the milk to another plant to get it processed, that doesn't make economic sense when fuel prices are as high as they are. And then exports, we have been like crushing the export game the last few years, the last, I think, five years here in the United States of exporting a ton of our milk, and that has slowed down. It's still growing, but it's just not growing as fast as it was. So it's kind of like this perfect storm of all of these things coming together to create no place for the milk to go and the milk dumping.
1: Yeah. And also uh, COVID didn't help because some of these processing plants that were supposed to be on and running already got postponed due to COVID and then due to the cost to build these plants. Obviously, uh, there's a lot of stainless steel in these plants and it takes a lot of labor to build them. And it just, I don't know by how much, but by a high percentage, the the cost to build these things when it's sky high.
0: Yeah. You're like jumping ahead of oh. my talking point. Oh,
1: <laughs> sorry. Golly.
0: So yeah, that is one issue. It's actually something we talked about in our co-op is our co-op has decided in our area has decided to implement a quota system. So basically you can only produce so much milk. And if you go over that quota, you make less money on that milk or there's like the risk they won't be able to pick it up or there's like a lot of things that happen, right? If you go over quota. And when we were talking about it within our co-op, one of the issues was we can build more plants, but it doesn't pencil out. It's so costly to build a plant right now that you're you'll won't make your money back in 30 years. And so it doesn't make sense to bring these plants online like it used to be so much cheaper to be able to put up a plant. And so even though dairy demand is growing, like I think that's crucial as people see milk dumping and thinking people aren't buying dairy, dairy demand is really good. We just can't build processing plants at the right price or fast enough. Right? So I think one of the benefits in this situation right now is that beef prices are really high. So when a dairy cow is no longer a dairy cow, it enters the beef supply system. And so beef prices are really high. So some people do think this will level out that there will be dairies that choose to beef more cows and that will bring the supply down. It hasn't quite happened yet, but like it's getting from all the articles I was reading, we're going to hit a tipping point where people are going to be putting dairy cows into the beef supply system and taking them out of the dairy herd.
1: Yeah, honestly, every time this stuff happens, the efficiency of cows just compounds because that cow will not be making enough milk to pay for herself. And then if you have a high beef price, it's just easier to beef that cow. So
0: you know how people use the saying like devil's advocate? like I'm playing the devil's advocate. Well, I'm going to play the Natalie advocate here. And I know what she would say. If when she saw this photo, I guarantee the first thing that went through her mind and probably a lot of our listeners minds is food waste. Like we are just wasting massive amounts of milk and it looks terrible on the internet. It just is a horrible photo of throwing food out. Like they are literally dumping milk out into the field. And it's not a site that any dairy farmer wants to see. Like it doesn't help us. It's it. There's no benefit to it. But I
1: hate the sight of seeing milk being dumped. I can't stand it.
0: But I think it goes to like, it's just a lot of people are like, why don't you donate it? It's not as simple as just donating the milk. Even if you wanted to donate it, it still needs to go through a bottle processing plant or something to be able to be donated. And so the whole issue is that there's no place to take it. I do think a good alternative, like you said, is if you can work with a local like calf ranch and sell the milk to them, but like that's only goes so far. They may already have other systems in place. They don't need you jumping in. Like it's just not that simple, but I know it's like the hardest part about this story is it's what people see. And I really feel like it gives dairy like a black eye. And the last thing dairy needs is like another black eye. We get plenty of those on the regular, but it does look bad.
1: For sure, you just can't give raw milk away, so it has to go through a processing plant.
0: All right, any, that's it, final thoughts?
1: No, I'm good.
0: All right, on to article number two. This one, I picked this one out, I thought it was really interesting. So the title is, 32-year-old spent $2,000 setting up an Airbnb in her neighbor's barn. Now her rental brings in $2.88 million a year. Jamie in low's ears perked up when her neighbor said the luxe apartment above his rust red barn sat empty. So basically, her neighbor had a sheep farm and had an unfurnished apartment from the previous owner. They had rented it out, but he did not want to rent it out, and so he teamed up with Jamie to rent the property out. And she actually came up with the idea when she they had moved out by this farm. And this neighbor was giving them a tour of the farm and she saw the apartment and really got her wheels turning. So she pitched him and they decided to go into this partnership together. And basically she took $2,000 and furnished it using Facebook marketplace and then listed it on Airbnb. Would you stay in a farm Airbnb? I think that's my first question. No. Really?
1: You- I get. I want to get off the farm when I go somewhere. I don't want to go to somebody else's farm to, like, stay with. Well, and it depends. Like, is there going to be flies at this? Like, <laughs> if there's flies there, I'm out. Like, I already got to deal with enough flies and pests on our own farm. I don't want to go to another one. <laughs> but if you want to go to the farming world and see it, then, yeah, sounds great.
0: Leave it to a farmer to be so practical I as know. to say that you don't want to be with flies maddie feels the same way she (laughs) doesn't want to go to a farm but there are actually some really cool ones so i this article really gets into how she like made money and she did not make 2.88 million dollars off of this single farm property the headline was a little bit misleading she turned that single property like started making money and was doing really well and then her and her neighbor teamed up on another property and then she teamed up on another property like there was a lot of like a lot of properties. I think it said they had 120 listings in Virginia that are making them that $2.88 million. So I just keep that in perspective. But I still think the agritourism side of this is interesting. And Airbnb actually has a category listed for farms. Like so you know how you could be like. Oh, you can
1: filter by it? Yes. Oh, wow.
0: So you could filter. This is a thing. You could filter like, you know, ski cabins, beach cottages, and then you can do farms.
1: Hmm, Sounds like we need to put one up around here.
0: Do you think people want to come to Eastern New Mexico to visit a dairy farm?
1: (laughs) Not after I just told them about the flies. (laughs) (laughs)
0: so i started looking at airbnbs and they definitely they name them really well so you would need something catchy and then airbnb actually has a page dedicated to helping farmers learn about hosting on their farms and making an extra income through agritourism which i thought was really cool like hats off to airbnb for like trying to make this happen so i found some really cool farms I, i scanned the listings and here's what i found
1: your research went way in more depth than mine.
0: <laughs> yeah, you're really coming in clutch. <laughs> the here. only
1: thing I could think of was like, I'm not going to a farm <laughs> to deal with flies.
0: Okay, so you can stay at an Amish farm for an Amish dairy farm for $100 a night, a lavender farm for $200 a night, uh, an Airstream on a farm in Southern California for $150. This one was cool. This was a huge house on a dairy farm for 10 people. And it was $1,500 a night. Wow. And then my favorite was actually a grain silo had been renovated and turned into a really cool place in Texas. And you can rent that for $250 a night. Huh. Yeah. They talk on a lot of them. It was like fresh farm, fresh eggs get delivered to your rental daily. Like, you know, they had some other things going on. And they, a lot were actually kind of more ranch, I feel like style homes. And they were in Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, a lot, a lot of that. And then a lot were not technically operational farms.
1: I figured that much. I figured a lot of them were just, you know, like um, hobby farms kind of, or they're just in a very pretty area in the country that have like an old or a farm feel when I was reading about this, I was thinking about, oh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, where they have their house. They have the whole animal thing and the ranch feel or whatever and a farmhouse. And it does look fun, right? To, if you're not around animals, to go out there and do that and be out in the country and look at some pretty grassland or maybe some mountains or whatever they have out there. so
0: A lot were really gorgeous views. I will yeah. say that. And then, um, yeah, it kind of, it felt a little like, like one of them actually used the word petting zoo. Like it was, you know, like highland cows, some mini horses, mini donkeys, some sheep, like the farm fresh eggs. And so I think you would have to get really creative of how you are marketing it. And actually that, this girl talks about that. She started an Instagram page, got a website and started SEOing for like, come stay on the farm. And that was truly how she did it. So where I actually went with this, I love that you went to Chip and Joanna Gaines because I do feel like they're selling, like a lot of their appeal is that like country lifestyle. It's like a part of their brand, that everything. Um, Maddie said for $100 a night, you can definitely come help work cattle with her.
1: (laughs) I was actually thinking the same thing. I was like, (laughs) you know, you can stay in the house for free if you just get your butt to work on time and come help me.
0: I think I would go to the lavender farm and stay. Just I want to throw that out there.
1: That that does sound nice smells nice
0: there was like apple orchards too or like i think i saw one that was like peaches like a peach farm any final thoughts about that before we move on to our third article
1: i wish we lived in a prettier area where we have an airbnb even though we do have a pretty spot just
0: mean we live in a beautiful spot new mexico is gorgeous golly we're just like you just.
1: i know but not for an airbnb
0: (laughs) (laughs) agree to disagree okay So before we move on, I want to talk about our giveaway. Uh, We actually were talking about the views of country living, you know, that these views. One of my favorite things to do do, throughout the week is see where the discos are listening to Discover Ag. This week, someone was listening to it on the beach, and it just, like, gave me a little break from my workday to see somebody laying on the beach listening to Discover Ag. So thank you for those shares. We've seen people, like, working on... leather we've seen like metal workers we've seen some really cool things that people are doing or looking at while they're listening to Discover Ag and we do love to see it so I'm reminding you about our giveaway if you share about Discover Ag on your, the social channels and tag us leave us a review subscribe or follow us on wherever you listen to podcasts every single month we pick a winner and we do a giveaway with an amazing box um, as Natalie said last week the next couple of months we have some really incredible like handmade things from some of our listeners that actually sent it and Mark, Mark sent in some really cool things for us to give away in that giveaway. So um, be sure to enter. Okay, for our third and final article, U.S. approves the sale of lab-grown chicken. The U.S. Department of Agriculture granted approval to cultivated meat producers for the first time in the United States, representing a watershed moment for the alternative protein industry. Initial thoughts, Daniel.
1: Initial thoughts sounds terrible (laughs) like this doesn't sound good at all
0: so it's actually two california companies that have gotten approval it's called upside foods and good meats it will still be years before the slab-grown meat is actually in the grocery stores right now it's rolling out in restaurants and but this is still a big step like no questions about that this is a big step and the first restaurant that we'll have it are actually in San Francisco, which is where my sister lives. So I was thinking maybe the next time we go to visit her, we would go and give it a try. No. I wish all could see Daniel. No, Daniel. It
1: ain't happening.
0: You would <laughs> not try it. Like you would not give it a, you would not eat it.
1: No. It is made in a lab. It cannot be good for you. There's no way in my mind you can tell me that something made in a lab is good for your body. <laughs> Like, you want to talk about ingredients added. That sounds terrible. Like everything is added.
0: So we actually talked about this on discover ag a couple other times we, on episode 60. We talked about lab grown meat and our title for that was, this is literally a factory farm. Like people yeah. love to bash factory farming. And like, this is literally a factory making your meat.
1: I don't know. I just, in my mind, I keep thinking of people in white coats making our food, uh, with all these instruments that uh, like, oh, we need 12 cc's here, two cc's here, add this protein, add this fat. And where are they getting this protein and fat from or taste?
0: So actually you brought up some really good questions and let me um, share them. So how is lab grown meat made? I think that was actually a question I personally had. So lab grown meat begins with immortalized cells. <laughs> tasty, so tasty sounding. I don't even
1: know what that is.
0: So this is actually controversial. Um, So immortalized cells are cells that continue to grow no matter what, which is essentially what a cancer cell is. So there's been a lot of debate online about the fact that like lab grown meat is derived from like quote unquote cancer cells, but it's technically called immortalized cells taken from an animal. Those cells are fed water, salt, nutrients like amino acids, vitamins, minerals. The cells multiply in a large tank called cultivators or bioreactors. And when harvested, the product is essentially minced meat, and then they form it into patties, sausage, or fillets. The meat contains no bones, feathers, beaks, hooves, and does not need to be slaughtered. Slaughtering sounds better than all of that in my opinion. I've actually been to a processing like where you harvest meat and it that was not. It was fine. I was it's totally a, comfortable with it.
1: Been doing it for millions of years.
0: That is a very good point. We right. have been doing it for millions of years. I think so I'm going to play um Natalie advocate again of what I think Natalie would say because one of the things in that quote was it contains no f- bones, feathers, blah 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 blah. But one of the amazing things about animal ag is that we literally use from nose to tail. Like there's not one single piece of the animal that it isn't utilized. Heck, all the way down to the manure, right? Like everything is utilized. And so I think it's really naive of people to think like, oh, all we want is the steak. So we'll just make the steak. Although they're not making steak, they're making minced meat, but, or not even, they're making something. But we don't just use the meat. We're using all of the animal, from things from pharmaceuticals to your toothbrush to everything, crayons, has something from animals in it.
1: Well, like Henry Ford says, he despises waste. And so do the processing plants that uh, process the beef or chicken or pigs, whatever. They want to utilize every single part of that animal. Uh, one, so that they're profitable. And two, so that obviously we're not wasting anything.
0: Yeah. Yeah um it also we this is chicken only so they actually started with chicken because apparently beef is i don't even
1: think you can call it chicken it's not chicken
0: so that's another point you're jumping all over the place i can't keep up with you i'm
1: sorry but every time somebody says meat or chicken it's not it's was in a lab it's mush or i don't even know what you describe it as
0: So arguments are going on right now over whether it can be called meat. So this company could not use the word meat. So they use it. Cell cultivated chicken is the official title.
1: Can't even call it chicken.
0: Well, apparently they can, according to the USDA. (laughs) So that was actually something I was going to say when you were interrupting me on your role is that they're using chicken because beef is actually harder to replicate. It's really hard to replicate the texture and feel and all taste of beef. And they feel like chicken is easier than beef. So that was why that's where they started. Okay. U.S. is the second country after Singapore to grant this kind of approval, but they're really hoping that this decision will kind of be like a snowball that like other countries will follow suit. But as we covered on episode 78 of Discover Ag, Italy has banned lab-grown meat. So I don't know if it's going to be the snowball they hope it is.
1: I hope not. I hope some good research comes out of it if it helps with some kind of cancer thing or something that can help – and medical wise, but I really don't see.
0: Oh, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. Like, so like instead of cultivating meat, like let's cultivate, you know, like a new heart for someone or grow a new something else that would be helpful in the medical field. Is that where you brought my, <laughs> kind of went?
1: I don't remember how you worded it, but uh, my mind went to maybe some research will come out of that on how to cure cancer if mm-hmm. they're using cells that uh, grow like cancer. So I don't know.
0: So speaking of kind of like the research side of things, you know, supporters of cultivated meat say the product has better outcomes for the environment, quote unquote, we're not surprised there, food safety and animal welfare. But skeptics are are weary of the scientific and safety risk. And we have seen already online, we've talked about this, that lab grown meat has uh, carbon emissions 25 times higher than conventional beef.
1: Oh, I believe it. Think about all the trash that they have to... Use chemicals to clean all the to clean your factory there. Uh, not to mention how much power they're going to have to use. So a lot of a lot of things go into that non-mush stuff.
0: <laughs> so one thing too is that this was a quote going back to the factory farm: is consumers are looking for an alternative to chickens that are bred in a factory and slaughtered. And I'm like bread in a factory. These are grown in a factory. Like I, it just is so, it's so crazy to me. I think that people have a problem with things like GMOs, vaccines, antibiotics, like all of those things are a big hot topics in our food system right now. But like lab grown meat is okay. But if you actually go and dive into the comment section, which is someplace, you know, we love to hang out, see what people are saying. I feel like it's not very positive, actually. There's a lot of people, majority of people who are weighing in online, giving comments, were had negative feelings about this, which maybe then isn't that surprising.
1: Yeah, I I don't know what to say to that. Yeah. I have all the negative feelings about it, so...
0: You're speechless. Uh,
1: Yeah, I really am. Because I have I don't have one good thing to say about it that I can think of. I'm sure there are some pros, but it's very hard to me to see them.
0: So another, I think, concern that I have, and I know Natalie has it as well, is how people will use this to like patent foods. Like, so you can't like patent a cow. You can have a cow, you could harvest it, you could have meat. In theory, like these meats cultivated meats would be like patented like the companies will own the rights like it already was in this article when they were discussing how the lab grown meat was produced the companies were like well we won't give away our proprietary information of how we do that and so it brings up kind of like an ethics or like a food sovereignty conversation of like whether someone should be allowed to like patent the process of making food and if people are moving us away from meat and towards this which I I think is not likely to happen on a large scale but like who has the right to decide like who owns the rights to make food does that make sense
1: and that is a very interesting side of it Mm -hmm. yeah like if it did get big or something and you don't want to share your information on how to grow it or do it they would almost i I don't know if it'd go to a monopoly a
0: monopoly a
1: monopoly but Yeah, they're definitely be making a lot of money off of it. And uh, we're a lot of kids are starving out there. So that would really I mean, I'm all about somebody making money, but to a certain extent.
0: I really wonder how much of a market share they can actually obtain. So on a whole, the world is consuming more meat. The demand for meat is increasing. Um, as countries typically go from developing to developed, or people move to like middle class or you know upper middle class, they consume more animal protein. And so there is a need for more animal protein. And I think... I feel like this is like going to be such a small percentage. They actually had the numbers of like millions of tons of meat that's consumed a year versus like the tiny fraction that like a single lab could actually produce. Um, And so it makes you wonder, you know, I even think about like flipping the conversation to the milk side of things, which, you know, I love to do. I love to bring it back to dairy, but people love to talk about milk alternatives. And actually milk alternatives are like a very small portion of the dairy aisle or the dairy growth, you know, demand for dairy. And I feel like this will be kind of similar to that. Like, sure, it's a novelty. People will try it. Maybe you'll go to a restaurant in San Francisco. But I, I think it's going to be a long time, if ever, where you go to the grocery store and it's just like second nature to pick up a steak that's lab grown.
1: Yeah. And Maddie brings up a good point. it uh, She was asking, how much is it going to cost? And yeah, it, as of right now, it is going to cost a lot more.
0: Oh, for sure. And I mean, obviously their argument against that, like the upside foods is like the more we do it, the cheaper it'll get, right? Like that's with anything. The more you yep. do it, the cheaper it'll get. But I still think there's going to be, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that has to happen for you to get anywhere close to that. Like, I mean, I think right now it's like, I feel like I saw somewhere it was like $10,000, like one ounce of, you know, minced meat. <laughs> um, and so I think it's going to be a while, wow. <laughs> but I would be curious if you guys are listening, let us know. What you guys think of it, would you guys try it? Would you have it as a re- at a restaurant? Would it be like a novelty for you to try it or something you would not touch with a 10-foot pole? Well, on that note, thank you for coming on to Discover Ag today. Did you have fun?
1: Yeah, I had a great time.
0: Was it as nerve-wracking as you thought it would be?
1: No, I am getting a little bit less stressed about these things after being on Like,
0: You get more comfortable as the minutes start rolling to <clears throat> the podcast, huh?
1: Yeah, and obviously if you have somebody seed- seasoned like you... It makes it a lot easier. <laughs>
0: oh, thanks, honey.
1: You don't know what to say. Tar will come up with something to say <laughs> and fill in the, the gap there. So, All
0: right. Well, thank you guys for listening to this special episode of Discover Ag, where every week we discover what's new in the world of agriculture. We will be back with Natalie next week.